Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 156th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Delin Zell. Delin is the founder and CEO of Bridgeworth Financial, a hybrid RA based in Birmingham, Alabama, that oversees nearly $1.6 billion of assets under management for almost 2,000 clients. What's unique about Delin and her firm, though, is the way they decided from the start to build an advisory firm that would sustain past the founders and have taken the steps over the years to establish the necessary career track and equity and compensation structures to attract and retain next-generation talent for the firm in order to sustain in the long run. In this episode, we talk in depth about the four-tier career track that Bridgeworth has created, from a planning coordinator who focuses on doing the technical work for a base salary, to associate advisors who are involved with client meetings but also have the responsibility to start networking and establishing themselves in the community, lead advisors who have primary responsibility for relationship management and some incentives for business development, and partners who have a heavier responsibility for business development, but also a greater financial participation to incentivize their ongoing efforts to keep growing the firm and its equity value. We also talk about how Bridgeworth structures its compensation for partners, the unique way the firm allocates partner salary based on credits for both their business development and revenue or other leadership responsibilities to compensate their ongoing work in the business as separate from their equity ownership of the profits, which in turn is based on what they originally brought to the business when it was formed, how and why Bridgeworth is reinvesting into the business development training for its next generation advisors so they too can become eligible to become a partner in the future. And the way the firm is developing advisor teams that may each have their own specializations to support their own individual business development activities under one common firm-wide umbrella. And be certain to listen to the end, where Dylan talks about how even with the long-term success in the business, it was still incredibly difficult in the early years, why she thinks the longer on the advisory business is an especially good fit for women and how the gender split of CFP professionals may shift in the future. And why the most important thing when selecting an advisory firm to build your career is not the firm's compensation or particular role, but instead its culture and whether it's a place you want to be in the long run. And then let the role and your opportunity evolve as it may over time in a firm and culture you trust. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Delin Zell. Welcome, Delin Zell, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael. I'm looking forward to the uh, to the podcast today, and you know the 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 firm that you are building has, I think, some unique characteristics over over others. Uh, you know, as we'll talk about more in the in the podcast. Today, I know this was something that that you would launch with other partners uh, a little more than ten years ago, and and it's something that you had launched sort of from the start, saying. We want to start and build an advisory firm that is going to go beyond us and live past us. And and I find it's an interesting juxtaposition because that 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 doesn't really happen a lot in our in our advisor world. I mean, I think there's a lot of firms, particularly on the solo practice end, that just 
they probably won't outlive the founder. They almost certainly won't outlive the founder. And and you know what? Uh, it's going to make great money for the founder, and they can retire and achieve their goals. And so you know, more, more power to them. Like you don't you don't always have to make a thing that that goes on. You can do the work and get paid well for the work and move on. And and certainly there are subset of advisors that then get to that point where you're within maybe five or ten years of retiring yourself and saying and look around so like oh. You know, I like we build a thing here. I think this could probably last beyond me. I um, I think I'm going to try to figure the succession planning thing out. Like, I I, I want to figure out how to do this. I'm like, I'm proud of what I've created, and I would like to have it go on. But, but you you seem to have come at this from a little bit of a different perspective. Of you are already being experienced in the industry, but saying, hey, you know, we're going to make this independent firm thing, and from day one, like I'm assuming we're going to try to build something that's going to live past us. And I, I'm just, I'm, I'm fascinated by that mentality and just very interested to know sort of in practice, how has that played out? I mean, like, what, what have you done or tried to do and how do you start structuring and building a firm if you're coming at it with the assumption this thing's going to be here long after we are? Well, you know, when we started talking about that, we came up with that idea really about 12 years ago. We were with a prior firm, uh, and maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later. But as we were thinking about what we wanted to build and what we wanted our future to look like, we looked around and we looked around our city, we looked around our region, around the country. And like you said, a lot of people were uh, solo practitioners or two or three partners, and they used their name. You know, it was built on that advisor's name. And I had started my career at one of the big eight accounting firms. I guess that age tells you my age a little bit. I think it's what the big four now started there. And I, I was thought a lot about their model. And my husband was with a very large law firm here in the city. And I thought about their model and thought, you know, maybe we should structure something like that. That's how firms kind of perpetuate themselves into the future is not resting on one person. And so that really is what started it. Now, I will tell you, as we continued down that track and have gone through some reorganization and built career tracks, you realize, really, it's in the best interest of our clients. It's in the best interest of our employees. It's in the best interest of the G2s and the G3s for a firm to sustain that and live past the founders. You know, it's an interesting point that as much as we – sort of talk about this in in our advisor world and our I guess quote unquote trying to figure this out as as an industry that you know having service businesses that are built around people's knowledge and intellectual capital sort of that that pure thing of what we do in advisor world uh like that challenge of how do you take businesses that are built around individual people's intellectual capital and then turn it into actual lasting enterprises that outlive those people. Like we are not the first ones to come up with this challenge. Like law and accounting have been doing this for a century or two. So we don't have to entirely reinvent the wheel. Like starting point is just, as you said, like just look around at what some other industries have done. There are other folks out there that have figured some of this stuff out, at least one way that seems to work pretty well for very long periods of time. That's right. How did that, like, was there a model that was taking shape in your head as you were going down this road of what you would want it to look like? I mean, were you trying to model pretty directly off of a, a big four slash eight accounting firm or a big law firm? How, how do, how were you visioning 
you know, sort of V1.0, because I'm sure it's changed a little. So like going back to 0708, as you were thinking about this, like what was version 1.0 in your head of how how might you try to build an advisory firm that's going to live beyond us? Sure. I guess to really explain that, I need to share some context of where we were. We were with a firm at that time, and it was a planning firm. And I would tell you 30 years ago, the leader of that firm, I think, was a visionary and got a lot of things right. We A lot of things were not right. But with the idea of, look, one person can't know everything, right? You know, I think if as an advisor, you sit in front of a client and you say, I'm I'm the end all be all and everything of financial advice, I think that's being a little disingenuous. And so the firm was really built, the prior firm was built, we had a planning department. And again, this was thirty years ago. We they we paid for CPAs, attorneys, we hired a lot of that intellectual capital. You know, at the time, I was in my 20s. I didn't have a lot of experience um, at this. Neither did many of us there. And so we had that planning department, which was fantastic. And, you know, some of the best things that happened career-wise as far as the growth happened during that period. But there were things that didn't feel right. And what I mean by that, Michael, is that it was like many other firms set up like a real estate operation. We marketed under one name. We shared some resources together outwardly the clients really didn't know we weren't a real firm but we were each of us was you know eat what you kill hire your own staff so yet here we were operating with this great planning department and doing what I thought was really extraordinary planning yet the infrastructure was still very solid and that's where I had the biggest problem going this is not sustainable into the future. This, this isn't what we want. It didn't feel real good to us. And honestly, at the time, we were kind of a square peg in a round hole. Here we were, we were all CFPs, had this great planning department, and we were affiliated with an insurance broker dealer. And you know the pressures that they put on you from that standpoint, that didn't feel right to us. So I think, you know, it was happened at a point in time in my life where I was able to step back a little bit and say, hey, you know, what does the future look like? Um, I had was taking a little, I never took time off, but I slowed down some when I had a baby and husband was working. And so I had a little bit of, I guess, time to think and, and think about the future and came back and said, folks, we need to do something different. This this is not the right model for us. And that was really the impetus 12 years ago when we started thinking about putting a group together. And it was a little interesting because not everybody in the firm, honestly, was those we felt we wanted to build the next firm with. So that that was a little awkward. Not everyone shared the same vision. So we, you know, Hired a consultant, did some strategic planning, did some visioning, came up with the name, and we launched Bridgeworth in October of 2008. And that's another interesting story in itself. But we here we were, we became Bridgeworth, and we were in the same building as our other group. It was like getting a divorce and living in the same house for a while. But that was really the impetus, Michael, for for that vision of, hey, we want to build something that lives past us. So, so you were in, it sounds like a, a, a fairly traditional broker-dealer environment, insurance broker-dealer environments. Like we, they give you the platform, they give you certain centralized resources. So they, they had a planning department to help you as a centralized resource across all the, 
all the brokers, the broker dealer. But at the end of the day, just that that looming presence of, you know, at the end of the day, we all get paid when you sell the company's products <laughs> was just kind of a looming problem for you. I mean, what did the what did the business model look like for you? I mean, were you still active in that world? Were you kind of already migrating into a more AUM and fee-for-service sort of world and then getting friction from the company because you were doing more fees and less products? Like what? what well, I will tell you that, yeah, you know, at that point, the insurance broker-dealer, it was really open architecture. So th- they were not pressuring sales and, and we weren't doing many sales. We had already migrated to the fee side. We were doing planning. We were, we had the credentials. We had the reputation in town of really being good planners. But at the end of the day, you know, even from a competitor standpoint, you know, they're just with that, you know, insurance broker-dealer, you know, client gets the ADV and it talks about you being an insurance agent. That That just didn't, fit what we were really doing. And I would tell you that was at the core of, of, of part of the change as well. Was just the the perception and you had this joint, I guess ADV is a hybrid and the and the joint AV ADV is a hybrid is disclosing this long list of things that you don't actually do, but quote, the firm does. So their disclosures are your disclosures and your disclosures are now your conversations with your prospect that you didn't necessarily want to have because those aren't things you do. Yeah, it didn't feel right. And it, it wasn't the right place for us. And so we became a true, we put our own hybrid in 2012. Made a change. You know, our brokerage side of the business really was not selling products. It was more of legacy holdings. You know, we had been in business for many of us for 20 years at that point. You know, you have all that legacy business. And if it had been my decision alone, I would have just walked away from that and said, hey, we'll be fee only. However, at the end of the day, it's people. You know, it's not just an account. There, there are people who we made we made promises to years ago and maybe older clients that a brokerage account may have been the right thing for them. And and morally, we didn't feel like we could walk away from those people. We wanted to deliver and be there when, as long as we promised them. So the transition for you uh, in 2008 was that what you, you launched an external RIA, but you kept the broker dealer relationship for the legacy brokerage business and became a a hybrid with an external RIA you could drive yourself instead of a uh, being dual registered under the corporate RIA was that like the actual shift in 08 the shift in 08 michael was we stayed with the same insurance broker dealer we reorganized under the name bridgeworth it was really a baby step to leaving and then in 2012 we actually left that broker dealer walked away formed the hybrid we put our um brokerage business and we custodied with LPL and we now custody with Schwab also. Okay. And is and is that still the the structure today that you operate as a hybrid, the brokerage business is under LPL and then the uh the RA business is under Schwab. Right. Our brokerage business is just very, very, very small. I mean, you know, four percent of our revenue, but we, we shut down brokerage. We don't open any brokerage account. We're not taking any commissions. Again, we just have that to its legacy. You know, maybe a client has a managed account and, and they may still have a small brokerage account. And, you know, we've looked at selling that piece off. We've looked at doing something different, but at the end of the day, I think we're just going to let it, you know, slowly continue to die on the vine. 
and just not continue feeding it. So I am curious on that end because I, I, you know, there are so many firms that are in that same position. The, the business has largely gone RIA, but they do have a uh, some level of called legacy brokerage business. It's got old, it's got old trails. So there's compensation attached to it, and just it's 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 business you can't always move. You know, the the at least often old old manage accounts and mutual funds, like I can do a share class conversion to an institutional share and move it into an advisory account. Like there's at least often a migration path. But when you get legacy annuities, legacy 529, some of the others, like there there just isn't a thing. There like there just isn't a way to work with it on an advisory basis. And so you get to this crossroads of, you know, we can we can walk away from it sort of let it become a house account where it is. We can we can sell off that book of business if we can find a friendly buyer that isn't going to try to poach Take the your client. yeah. poach the clients that right. you're now sort of <laughs> right. working with jointly. Or you can just keep it and try to find a broker dealer that's willing to let you hang your hat there and keep the client business there, recognizing that you're not exactly a growth story for them because you're not adding new new clients and new brokerage business. But presumably from their end, like you're stable and you don't have a lot of service demands. So it it shouldn't be hard business for them to support. And it just kind of runs off over three or five or 10 or 20 years or however long it takes for all that, all of those things to wind down. We don't, you know, people joining us do not get their securities license. Most in the firm have dropped their securities license. We don't pay out brokerage revenue. It comes to the firm. So. Oh, interesting. So any, any legacy business is just like, this is just part of the, Part of the kitty, I guess, in practice, because most of the people who did it are partners who merge in their practices anyway. So, like as a part of you, you kind of get a piece of it. You, you, maybe not exactly your pro rata share, depending on who contributed what, but like it, it is profits to the business, and the partners participate in profits. So, if you brought some of the revenue in, you at least kind of sort of participate in some of it. Sure, and, and there again, it's so small. And to try to sell it just didn't seem practical. You know, it just seemed like a lot of hassle to us. And, you know, I I couldn't figure out how people sell it. And you have a client you share jointly. That just didn't make a lot of sense to me. So at the end of the day, NLPL was very understanding about it, went to them and said, look, this is the business model we want to operate on. Um, And and I will say that they were very receptive to that and and understood what we were doing. So... So I, I do have to ask, though, from just the, as you said earlier, like the marketing and perceptions end, you have a hybrid relationship. So LPL shows up on the ADV as a disclosure. You've got a you know bunch of different things that now have to get communicated. You've got a, a second regulator in FINRA that at least has like one, one, one claw, one tentacle into the into the firm now, you know, you, you, you get limited in that you can't market as fee only, which important for some, not for others. So how, how do you look at or think about those issues? So I know for some firms, like that's actually what causes them to pull the trigger is like, I, I just be able to want to market you in a simpler way. Sure. Well, we do our marketing. I mean, we did a lot of, uh, I will tell you, there was a lot of thought and effort and consultants and attorneys involved in this and taking a look at, we will market under the RIA. And so we're very, we're very careful with that, but we do market under the RIA. And yes, you're right. The ADV certainly has to have those, those disclosures. But, you know, the fact that we have a, a brokerage affiliation seemed to be 
that doesn't bother me or our clients as much as having that insurance relationship, so to speak, with the insurance broker dealer. Oh, interesting. So, so in practice, like the hybrid to LPL has been less of a concern for you than hybrid to a legacy insurance company in particular. It did. It really did. And I, I can't explain this. You know, it may have just been the where we were in the life cycle of our firm, but when we became that true hybrid, our average size clients went up tremendously. Our firm's makeup on client size and revenue looks completely different today than it did 10 years ago. To what do you attribute the change? Like, is that just, this is the value of having your own independent brand that you've been able to build a brand in your town so you attract a different kind of clientele than, quote unquote, just being another registered representative of ABC Insurance Broker Dealer? Sure. I think it was several things kind of all coming together, you know, at the same time. One, we had 20 years in the community, you know, personal reputations, networking, building our own personal reputation, and then to be able to go out and really, in our prior firm, we, there was no marketing dollars spent. It was really us individually doing it. And then when we came together as Bridgeworth, that was part of the whole impetus for starting Bridgeworth, other than reasons I've already stated, but to be able to go out there and brand under a name that wasn't just us individually. And I think just that branding, the out in the community, and the 20 years, you know, when you're out marketing, you're building your own thing, as you well know, Michael, it doesn't happen overnight. You know, it takes a, <laughs> it takes a long time. And then after a while, you start planting those seeds and many times those seeds start, you know, developing and maturing. So I think it happened all at once, if that, if that makes sense. Uh, the branding and then our, our tenure, just in the life cycle of our careers. Well, and, and it's worth recognizing as, as well, you know, you're your firm's based in Alabama. I think your headquarters is in Birmingham, and then you've got a, a second location in Huntsville. So you're you're in a, yeah, uh, I guess like a, a mid-sized market. I mean, uh, Birmingham is not a small city, but you're you're not in a New York City, Chicago, Minneapolis, like ultra dense metropolitan area. You're you're in a you're in a city that that has some size and substance, but is still small enough you can actually stand out and differentiate and and truly become regionally known in your city. That's exactly right. Exactly. So we feel very fortunate with that. You know, I would say our competitors, for the most part, as we were getting started, were really the smaller fee-only firms. There really hasn't, well, there's one affiliated with an accounting firm that's done a great job, but outside and, you know, started from their own standalone RIA, we are really the largest that's uh, the makeup, you know, in size that we are. And I, you know, I think size is important. My practice was built uh, in one niche area with South Central Bell employees. One of my partners did the same thing with Alabama Power, Southern Company. And we were able to, to, to utilize those specialties and that niche marketing to really grow grow the practice. But as we continue to grow, and again, back to the law firm, accounting firm analogy, I felt the size, look, we didn't have to choose one specialty. We didn't have to say, hey, we're just going to work with retirees. We've All of a sudden, we kind of developed a, a niche in the legal community. We have a lot of lawyer clients, a niche really in the medical community. 
We see a lot of uh, physicians, of course, the retirees, and then obviously with the number of women we have in our firm, we, we certainly couldn't overlook that. And so we do see a lot of women, especially women executives here in Birmingham. So I, I like I have so many questions around this of of you know niches as as many folks who know who listen to the podcast we 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 kind of talk about niches with some frequency of of power of niches but so often niche conversations are like what is what is your thing going to be what is your focus going to be and and it's kind of a you know pick pick your one so I'm I'm fascinated that you have kind of ended out with multiple different niches. So I guess just talk to me a little bit more about how that works. Like, does the firm market in all these different niche areas? Is it like individual partners end out with their niches? So like you are known for your specialty with uh, employees from South Central Bell and your partner is known for employees in Alabama Power and all of you sit under this umbrella uh, regional brand known as Bridgeworth. Is that how it works? So, again, for a little context, so back in 1988, when I started, and two of the remaining founders of, of Bridgeworth started you know, with me at that time, you know, we were building our own little brand, our own little silos, if you will. And I've always said successful people always have a little luck along the way. It takes a lot of hard work, but, you know, and I, I think my lucky break was being in a situation when South Central Bell made their first early out offer in 1990 and 91, I was working with a lot of those women and other people at the company. We had their pension calculations. Uh, we were on their list of approved planners for their executives. And lo and behold, they made this offer. And we're the ones in Birmingham who were able to do the projections for them. The company was not giving the projections. You know, that's when the lump sum was based on the PBGC rate, and that rate was moving quite a bit at that time. That was our lucky break. And the same thing was happening with the power company. And so I would tell you the retiree market has really always been the bread and butter of our firm. After we launched Bridgeworth, a lot of that slowed down. And I personally am looking on the landscape going, okay, I don't want to practice just built around then it became AT&T clients, you know, that you want to you want to branch out. And I was fortunate and started getting a lot of referrals in the community in different areas. Maybe it's because I was married to a lawyer, but all of a sudden I found myself with quite a few attorneys and my partners are really doing the same thing. And then a few years ago, as we were bringing in younger advisors and newer advisors, and I will tell you through a lot of your podcasts and listening to a lot of other people around the country, I do believe specialization is the key, you know, to driving those referrals. That's a lot easier when somebody says, hey, go see Delenn. She knows everything there is to know about AT&T. And then the client just picks up the phone. Hey, I'm told I need to come see you. That's, that's pretty powerful, Michael. So I am a firm believer in, in specialties. Uh, so to fast forward a little bit and where we are today, as we were looking at our marketing efforts and where we were spending our dollars, we really divided up our, you know, our client base and said, hey, because we have 18 advisors here, we have enough people here to specialize in a lot of different areas. And I wanted to build it out that if somebody came in and was an executive and had a lot of complications with stock options, you know, that we have a team that specializes in that. If somebody, if it's a female executive, you know, today's a little bit different than it was when I started. A lot of times they're wanting to work with another 
female, you know, and so we have that option here for them. If it's a doctor at UAB, we have one of our partners who does a tremendous amount of work with physicians at UAB. We're going to bring them in and utilize their expertise with the clients. We also have a planning department, Michael. So we have three people full time who are not seeing clients, but who are our technical resources as well. And they have a deep bench uh, strength of knowledge in all these different areas too. Interesting. And so so like the the firm effectively may have multiple niches, but it sounds like individual advisors, individual partners still tend to be at least mostly in one particular area. Yeah, you know, and some will be generalist, but I will say you could almost, uh, I could go look down the hall and kind of and put people in a, in one of those niches. And so from the firm perspective, I guess that's one of the nice things of being an ensemble practice of multiple advisors and multiple partners under one shared firm and one shared umbrella. Like, you know, if I can bring the, you know, if I can bring the doctor in, it doesn't matter whether I take the client or it goes to the other partner who happens to specialize in doctors from that medical facility because the firm participates and the firm serves the client and that makes the firm profitable. And you have a lot of partners who participate in that. That's right. And again, back to that law firm example, I always use the uh, example with my partners here. My husband is a litigator. He gets friends and people call him all the time. Hey, I need a, I need my will done. And he laughs. He said, you don't want me to do your will. And he walks them down the hall or refers them to their estate planning area. Of course, he's still getting credit for landing and bringing that client in, but he is handing them off to somebody else who specializes in that. And I think in, in a firm of our size, that is, that is what I wanted to build to make sure we had specialties and that built a compensation and equity structure that was looking at the firm as a whole. And quite frankly, that's, and we will probably get into this a little bit later, I think that's how we're going to be able to bring in and sustain that firm with the G2s and the G3s going forward. So I, I, I am a curious, just in the context of this conversation around bringing clients in that may go to someone else at the firm because they, they have that specialization uh, like, how does compensation and equity structure work at at Bridgeworth? I mean, it strikes me like there's there's an equity bucket here. There's sort of a compensation for the work you do bucket. There's there's usually like a business development bucket that may be separate. So, how do you handle that in a firm where you're really trying to make this more team-based environment, more collective environment. You want cross referrals to happen across the firm specializations, but obviously you don't you want you want people to be excited they brought in a client, not grumpy that they brought in a client, but quote, they don't get to work with that client. So how how does that work? You know, I, we use the phrase a lot around here. If we were building this from scratch, we probably wouldn't it wouldn't look like it does today. But when you brought eleven people together, with different size practices, you know, we had people at the time when we came together that were generating a million and a half of revenue themselves. And we had others, you know, a good bit lower, you know, in different stages of their career. So to build out that equity piece, that was a puzzle that I don't care how many podcasts I listened to, I could not figure out. Um, we were fortunate that we had been introduced to a woman named Carolyn Armitage. Uh, at one point, she was with LPL and she had they had offered us her services and 
to come in and really do a strategic plan? And I said, sure, come do it. And through that process, we started looking at, at how we needed to change our infrastructure. During that time, she became a partner with Echelon Partners out of California. Who does a, who, who I know does a lot of consulting around practice management partnership structures, equity transactions. They do a lot of mergers and transition mergers and acquisitions business as well. That's right. And because we had a relationship with Carolyn, she knew us. Um, I, I talked to some other consultants and we just had a long history with Carolyn. And so when she got to Echelon, they walked us through this process. And I would tell you that um, they did a fantastic uh, job doing it. It's a little complicated, Michael, but as far as the referral process, we came up with something called a referral calculator. So a client, uh, somebody sees me and says, Lynn, I need some help. And I say, you know what, why don't you go down, I'm going to introduce you to one of my colleagues um, who specializes in that area, or I'm going to, you know, he or she will call you. I'm going to keep in my bucket, we'll call it my revenue bucket, you know, and this is important for equity. I'm going to keep 15% of that. If I'm involved, and oftentimes we all are, we land the client, we help get them here, we may be involved in the initial round of plan presentation, at least securing that client involved on the front end, and then we back out. Um, that's another percentage. And then uh, totaling 40, and then whoever's servicing that business it will be credited with 60%. Now, everybody here is on salary, but we still keep up with things in our bucket to base those salaries off of. Does that make sense? I, I think so. So let me just make sure I'm... Um... I'm processing. So, so first, just at the client level, kind of like new client comes in, you're figuring out how to split this up. It's it's like fifteen percent for the introduction, twenty five percent more if you if you help facilitate the close, if you help seal the deal, and then sixty percent for just the the keeping and the servicing client the the clients on an ongoing basis. So that's how you figure out sort of who's got credit for what. Now, help me understand how this translates to sort of salary slash partner income, partner distribution, et, et cetera. Because like, obviously, you can't literally pay out 100% of the revenue because like, you have staff overhead and other expenses here. So like, otherwise, we would run out of money very quickly. So, like, so I, I get sort of the allocations of this like bookkeeping entry, but how does this actually translate to who gets paid what? Yeah. So this is where it gets a little complicated. And I can tell you that I see us maybe evolving this in the future, but this, what we came up with, what Echelon came up with worked for us. And that is we set partners on a guaranteed payment. Obviously in our legal structure, it's not a salary, it's, it's a guaranteed payment. Okay. And right, we had a... Okay. Yeah, and so we have a grid, and so the top-level salary, you know, the highest level of production, the guaranteed payment, is in a grid. So if somebody's producing $2 million of revenue, they're going to cap out, you know, on the top-level guaranteed payment. Obviously, it scales down, so somebody who's doing 400000 of revenue is going to be obviously on a much lower guarantee. We then, we hold back 15% of all the revenue to cover as you said, all the expenses of the firm. Quarterly, and this is where this gets a little crazy, quarterly we do a profit distribution. 
And that profit distribution quarterly is looking at each partner's bucket. And then at the end of the year, our profit is paid out based on ownership and equity. When the partners contributed their equity to the firm, they got shares. And those that contributed the largest amount of equity obviously got more shares than the ones who had the the smaller practices. And then um, the founders and those who were really giving up their uh, practice to run the firm also have an equity, additional equity piece as well. Now, that was to get us started because to take somebody that was generating close to $2 million of revenue as a partner and somebody at four or 500000 as a partner, you can't equally share profits. Right. So, so that's interesting that you, right, that you kind of split these apart. So, so I'm going to have these like, so I'm going to have this kind of referral calculator bucket calculation. You maybe like I, I, I service a million dollars worth of client revenue. So that's 60%. It's like $600,000 is in that bucket for me. Then, uh, you know, there's another $500,000 that I helped uh, bring in and close. So I get 40% of that. So that's another 200,000. Then maybe there's like a, a little bit more that I did in referrals and that's another 50,000. And so I might touch a million or a million and a half dollars of revenue in various ways. By the time you apply percentages, like my, my revenue in my bucket might be $800,000. And then somewhere there's a grid that says like, okay, if your revenue bucket is $800,000, your salary is 200 or 300 or X, what, whatever, whatever it is. And you, you know, decide as a firm what the salaries are going to be relative to the relative to your revenue buckets. But you can agree on that as a firm. Everyone's playing the same game under the same rules. So hopefully we're all comfortable with this. Right. And, you know, and it, cause it's still, it gave us a component of sharing profits at the firm level and, and to make sure that we're thinking from a firm perspective, not as an individual partner perspective. Now, I will tell you those at the higher level, we don't think twice about getting a new client, landing it, maybe helping close it, and then handing it to a G2 advisor and who is a lead advisor, but not a partner, um, to manage. And and that's easy. I, I would tell you those at the lower end of the scale are having a little bit of trouble with that, you know, and I think that will come over time. Just because their total numbers may not be adding up to where they want, because I because right, I'm just sort of thinking of this out loud. I mean, uh, uh, like as a partner who manages revenue, I mean, this is really sort of true in any advisory firm. Like I, there's a portion of the revenue that I will get paid for, call it my work in the business. You know, it's it's my direct salary or revenue-based compensation or whatever it is. And then there's a portion I'm going to get off the bottom line as my, as my profit distribution. And so it's what strikes me, and part of the distinction that you've, that you've made here is there's essentially a salary component, guaranteed payment, like functionally, there, there's a salary component that ties to sort of the revenue you have some kind of stewardship over, you brought in, you closed, you service. But presumably, like, that's not all the revenue in that pot, because some of it is supposed to drop to the bottom line as the profits of the firm. And I might participate in those differently, because the 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 above the line portion is carved up based on our revenue buckets off of the referral calculator. The below the line portion is based on a relative equity interest, which is much more driven by 
whatever I came to the table with as a founder that I put into the uh, put into the pot to get my relative equity share, or I guess if if I bought in or earned an equity subsequently, I may move that number a little bit. But I could have very different percentages. If I was a newer up and coming partner, I might not own a lot of equity because I didn't bring a lot at the beginning, and now it's a large firm and more expensive. But I can still get paid pretty well for my revenue bucket because I'm getting business done. That's right. And then, Michael, the dream is you have to look at it not just today, but when we, with the help of Echelon, are looking at this over the next 5, 10, 15 years, the things we're doing as a firm, those are really going to flow to the bottom line. And what I mean by that is we're acquiring practices we're buying out partners. And so we're creating more and more, and we're creating more leverage with our other G2 and G3 advisors. So that profit going to the bottom line is going to do nothing but to continue to increase. And the partners are going to share more and more from those bottom line profits, not just on their own. Right. Because that's right. Because that's part of the distinction, right? It, in the in sort of the classic broker world, like well, the platform takes something off the top, but whatever you get off of your grid, like all that's yours. We don't really make a distinction of like, what was your servicing revenue, your referral credits, your biz dev credits, and your profits, just like gross revenue minus broker dealer cut equals mine. <laughs> and and we don't make the, and we don't make these distinctions. Once you get into a firm environment and a multi-firm environment and a multi-firm multi-owner environment, these distinctions suddenly start to matter of how much do you get above the line? How much do you get off of the bottom line? And and recognizing just sort of the fundamental nature of ownership of a business, you know, uh, from an owner's perspective, you kind of want to drive it to the bottom line. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly right. And what we're trying to do, and, you know, to be an owner is not just producing revenue. An owner has the responsibility for the welfare and the health, financial health of the firm. And if we want to build a firm that sustains us, we have to start pushing things down down the line, so to speak. We can't just look at it as, you know, each partner looking at it for themselves. And I think that's just a requirement of being an owner. One of your previous podcasts, and I think it was, uh, I, don't, I don't recall his name from the Colony Group, I believe it was that who talked about, yeah, I believe, he, I think it was he who talked about if you bring in a client under a certain amount, the partner is required to push that to a to another advisor. And and I we have not implemented that, but that is on the table for discussion in our January meeting. That you know it, we have a responsibility and in, in to bring on this next generation. Listen, if I were starting this from scratch, every it would be great if everybody was about the same level of revenue and everybody had the same equity and we paid the expenses and we paid ourselves a salary and we split the split the profits. But coming together as we did, we had to find some way to reward those who had done a great job and had built a really big business, uh, who were not willing to take, you know, if you're doing a million seven of revenue, you're not going to be happy on a dollars $300,000 salary and hope their profits at the end of the year. Well, and, and, I, and I think you make a good point overall. I mean, kind of twofold here. One, just recognizing this split of what you do in the business versus the profits of the business and that you don't have to participate it's you don't necessarily have to participate in those pots evenly right if you 
impact revenue more directly. You can be paid more directly for your revenue. That's different than your ownership of the profits, which is what you get after all the people who are responsible for revenue get paid their fair compensation for servicing the revenue. You know, and we had this conversation with a partner just this week and said, look, you know, you land, you source the client, you help land them, you turn them over to a uh, G2, G3 advisor over time, you know, you're still getting 40% of that revenue and you really aren't doing that, doing anything, (laughs) even though the others, and you're still going to get some from the profits at the end of the year. And so, hey, that's not a bad deal, you know, bring them in, land them and turn them over. And I guess functionally it's, it comes out to sort of be a version of revenue-based compensation because my like my 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 referral buckets are going to add up to something when I put those buckets through the tiers of the salary. You know, X dollars in my revenue bucket equals Y dollars of salary. So if I divide Y into X, like I'm I'm going to essentially get to a version of revenue-based compensation, and and then you can decide as a firm like of the of this revenue bucket. How much are we paying out to the advisors who you know sourced it, closed it, and service it versus how much are we dropping to the bottom line? And that's just uh, decide how much you want to pay your people to attract and retain your people. That's exactly right. Exactly. You know, and, and as I said at the outset of this conversation, you know, that is the model that worked as we came together. You know, there, there's some who might say, let's look at who uh, maybe there should be some credit or who's more profitable. You know, who has the fewer clients at the largest revenue stream as opposed to some others who have a lot of clients uh, and a lower average uh, revenue per client. So we are uh, looking, uh, each advisor gets a sheet at the end of the year now. We are taking a look at what their average revenue revenue is per household, you know, and making sure that there's enough revenue coming in on each household to cover our overhead and our direct expenses. So, So I understand like the the need to arrive at the structure and kind of the just the finessing that has to go on in practice to get to a structure that works for everyone because as you said like we weren't starting with clean we're just everyone was from zero and everything was starting from zero we could just say hey let's all build this thing together like people come to the table with existing stakes and just simply put you you ain't going to get their buy in by like chopping them off of the knees you've got to maybe they got to give a little to build a greater thing hopefully but like you can't completely chop them off. You have to find a way where everybody feels like this is equitable. And so, so I guess I'm wondering both. So there's both an upfront like wrangling that happens to try to get everybody on the same page. And then I'm presuming there's some kind of ongoing wrangling that has to happen as you have these conversations about how to adjust and change the structure. So talk to us a little bit about, about that end. Like how did this, I'm going to just start from the, the, early end is as you're like trying to put this together in 2012 and you have all these different people I think you said 11 different practices of varying revenue and size and personalities and all the rest like how just how do you get everyone on the same page to come to an agreement on a thing like how did that come about I have to tell you that today I sit back and look and think I can't believe we did that <laughs> you know it it, it was pretty remarkable. You know, when we came together in 2012, uh, 
let me just kind of make sure we're on the same page here. When we came together in 2012, we were still our own revenue, kind of eat what you kill. It was really in 2018 that we spent the entire year of 2018 working with Echelon to reorganize all of this and come up with a new equity structure that we've just been talking about here in the firm. But as I, as I think back on it, a, a couple of things had to, the stars had to line up. First of all, you have to have the right people. And we always say you've got to have the you know right people in the right seat on the bus. And our other favorite phrase here is you have to be able to play well in the sandbox. So of the partners that came together, the 11, I don't think it would have happened just 11 people coming in off the street to say, hey, I'm going to do this. Keep in mind, the original founders have been together since 1988. You know, we're on 31 years together. If you don't trust somebody over 31 years, you shouldn't be here. Yeah. Okay. It's kind of amazing you didn't blow apart already if you were together after 31 years, you didn't trust each other. Right. So there was a huge, a very high threshold of trust. I mean, these people are like family. I know what they're, we know what each other's thinking, going to say before they ever say it. And But we've been through a lot together, and we've built something together. So there is so much trust. And then the people, I can't tell you that this could have been pulled off at every point in time along our, along our path in our history. But I would tell you that the people, is, it's like Carolyn said to Lynn, you've got the right people at the right time to do this. You know, we, we if even though we may not have worked with them for 30 years, they'd been here long enough that we had such a level of trust with each other that these are the people that we wanted to build something with. And these are the people who I trust to take care of my retirement one day. So out of curiosity, like were there, were there originally 12 or 13 or 14 and you came down to 11 that you got along the best in the, in the sandbox or, or was this really everybody and everybody came along? We, first of all, not everybody became a partner because they didn't meet the criteria we set out. You know, we had a threshold for revenue, but at the same time, we had some other thresholds too. You know, obviously it was there. We believe strongly in commitment to the firm and volunteerism and leadership and what they're doing in the community. And we had to set one pager that I had written, just our personal thoughts and listening to other firms of what it really meant to be a partner of Bridgeworth. So you had to have qualitative and quantitative measures to become a partner. When we did this structure, we did have one fallout from one person. It was unfortunate, but they were not going to be a partner and probably never would be because they just managed family money. And it really just, it was a, it was a very nice parting of the ways. We were just not the right place for that person. They'll have a great relationship but everybody else was in. And uh, I think it was exciting because you've got to get out of looking at it today. You can't just sit there and think, okay, what's this revenue percentage today? But when you look at it and say, hey, as a firm, as a large firm who owns all the clients, we become extremely valuable, a lot more valuable than we were the year before, right? We have the revenue, we have the credit, we can we can make investments together as a team. Because before we had people say, hey, I, I want to go buy a practice or I'm going to go out and buy a practice. Today, we're doing that as a group. We've bought out this year one of our founding partners. And, you know, it was pretty nice for him 
to be able to say, I can walk away. I don't have to go out and look for my next, for my successor. It's here within the firm and a firm of that size and revenue stream. And who is going to be sustainable is going to be here to pay me out over the next few years. So I think you've got the people here have, and I think have done a good job of not just looking in their solid situations, but say, hey, what is the potential? What can we do out there? Because, Michael, we've had people calling us who were interested in retiring. There's a lot of one, two men, two women shops out there. And as I talked to one recently, they said, you know, Jalen, I've got a partner here who's going to buy me out. But what if the partner has problems and doesn't make it? You know, I'm putting a lot of risk into one person's ability. And I think that's a huge advantage of what we have right now is somebody can come here with their practice. And, you know, sometimes when you have one successor, they don't jive with every client, right? So somebody can bring their practice here. We can buy them out. They have an incredible, I mean, we have just incredible, talented planners. They can look around and say, hey, we got a deep bench, if you draw on the basketball analogy, a deep bench strength here. And we can divide those clients out and we can fund that person's retirement And it's a win-win for everybody. And then the partners here, obviously, when that's paid for one day, that free cash flow goes to the bottom line and does nothing but increase profits. So that's really our 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 vision, Michael, is to is to do that. Now I will tell you, we've talked a lot in this conversation about profits and that, but that's not what we sit around talking about every day. It's really more of how we're going to build out the firm with our career tracks and bring along the G2s and the G3s. And we've built out a Bridgeworth University and a training program for those folks. Because when we talk about a firm being sustainable, it's only sustainable if that next generation is successful. And I feel that is our obligation to make sure that happens. It's a powerful point, I think, just to kind of say it out loud, like the firm is only sustainable if the next generation is successful. Because I, I find for a, a non-trivial number of firms out there, I think there's there's often a frustration of next generation advisors that, that just, you know, they're, they're not necessarily up to speed where, where founders and partners are. And, and to be fair, some of that is just well, yeah, you had like a 20 or 30 year head start on them. So it takes a while to get back to that same level of uh, of experience and, and capabilities. But that for a lot of firms, there's sort of this, I don't know, sometimes I feel like there's this lamentation of our next generation advisors are, are not where we'd like them to be. And uh, to me, like there's just a fundamental kind of mentality mindset shift when you come in and saying the firm is only sustainable if the next generation is successful, because it it's that's frankly to to me at least that communicates it's less about we're trying to find like the few magical next generation advisors that can perfectly hit the ground running and do all the stuff that we are hoping they can do. There's this if the next generation is successful and how are you responding to it? Career tracks, Bridgeworth University, like you're sounds like you're you're approaching it from the, you know, the question of whether they're going to be successful or not is on us to develop them. So, so let's get at it. That's exactly right. It's, you know, we the industry has gone through a tremendous transformation, and you know, thirty years ago, Michael, there were a handful of fee-only planners. As you know, the industry was born, you know, on the commission side, right? I hated that. I came out of an accounting background. I hated that tremendously. I hated hearing about sales contests and 
a paper in the kitchen of who had the most, you know, production for the month or something. Oh, yours was in the kitchen. Ours was <laughs> ours was just in the main hallway, but like around the back side of the office because like you can't have that on the fr- the client side of the office because that would be really awkward. So so it was on the it was on the back end of the main hallway, not where the clients walked, but where everybody else <laughs> that, walked, getting to their offices. Just so it was that's right, right. there, and everybody that's knew so- who was at the top of the board. That was the culture, and that's why I wanted to build a firm with my partners that that was a true professionally run firm and got away from that. But, you know, we fast forward. We are really fortunate. Um, we are located in a place where University of Alabama that's 45 miles down the road has a great financial planning program. University of Georgia has a great financial planning program, and we have hired quite a bit out of those programs. And but and they make great planners. I mean, I I. I am so jealous of, you know, I had to study accounting to get into this. They were actually able to study financial planning, you know, and do this. But the one thing that we've realized is we've created and hired a lot of great planners and we've set this up. So this may be our fault a little bit, but we've set them up and they have a career track and they come in and they have a salary. You know, you and I started without a salary. It was just a phone book and phone and yep. go get it. Start dialing. Go, go for it. Start dialing. Wish you, wish you well. You dial. yep. <laughs> so I sit here and look at these folks. I was like, God, they don't realize they've got it made, right? They, however, there is something to be said for those people who had to get out and hustle and build it because they they gained a lot of business development skills. And so the one thing that I'm, I won't say struggling with, but looking at now is going, you know what? People are coming in with great technical skills and they're learning great technical skills with people here in our firm. But we've got to teach those business development skills because not everybody has those. And so that is something we have put a lot of emphasis on this year. We're moving our offices uh, in two months uh, to a much more centrally located area to get our advisors closer to downtown, in downtown where everything is taking place and get more visible and, and teach them how to get out and develop business. Because I worry about that too of the next generation. The great news is we have brought in a lot of clients. We have a lot of clients. We get great referrals. But when I leave one day and when my partners and I leave, those of us who came up the old school way, if you will, I just want to make sure they still have those skills. Well, it, it is an, an interesting juxtaposition to me that that you know the 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 prior generation of advisors it was still a, a commission based eat what you kill world. So you, I mean, for a lot of firms, literally, like you started out selling, you started out trying to get clients, and if you were good enough that at that, and you hit certain levels of production and qualification in your contract, you were then allowed to go enroll in CFP certification learn to do planning, and you might even be at a firm that would then allow you to charge a fee for that planning and get paid for a plan. And like that was that was what you became allowed to do after five to seven years of sales success. And so there is this interesting aspect to me that we, we've kind of turned the career track around basically 180 degrees that the prior generation you 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 did the sales and business development first, and if you survive long enough at that, you got to learn the technical skills and do full and do full fledged planning. Now we just live in a world where you start out by learning the full fledged planning, and then stage two you have to go learn the the business development. I, I got to imagine there's you know 
for all of us that start on the biz dev side that look at people coming in today and saying, where are their business development skills? I have to imagine a few of them coming out of you know, great CFP programs would probably look at our technical skills when we were advising clients. The first five years, and we're like, I can't believe you were allowed in front of another human being. You didn't know anything. Uh, right. So it, it, it always feels weird to look at the other side of that divide, whichever, whichever side you're, you're on, you know, the, the, the CFP college student today probably knows more than what the average advisor did after seven years. It is amazing what they know <laughs> in, in the past, but they come at it from the other end. So you, in the past, we got good at business development and the firms decided to teach us financial planning. Now they come in good at financial planning, or at least the, the technical side, and we have to teach the, the the communication skills and the business development skills. Well, that's right. And so, you know, when we were reorganizing and coming up with these career tracks, Michael, that was the one thing that was first and foremost on my mind going, okay, you know, let's build a career track. But they've got to accomplish certain things before they progress. And when do they need to be thinking about business development? It's not 10 years, 15 years down the road. Or if they make partner, they got to be thinking about that. Or we've got to start teaching some of that. And so, you know, year one folks that come in, you know, we call them a planning coordinator. Other firms may call them a pair planner. We just like that term a little bit better than pair planner. You know, we're telling them, here's your focus, here's your responsibilities, here's what it's going to take to advance, you're going to get paid a salary, maybe a bonus, but we expect you to join the FPA, we expect you to be doing these certain things. When they progress to the next level of associate advisor, we they're going to be paid a salary and a bonus, and their bonus, Michael, is based on some KPIs. And a part, part of those KPIs are starting to build that network. You know, we want you to go out and, you know, have some lunches or coffees, and we're going to give you a business development allowance to do this. We want you to start building your professional network. Yeah, you may only be, you know, four or five years in the business or whatever, but you need to start, you know, building that relationship with the accountant, the lawyer, so the, your friends. So the pressure on by stage two is not necessarily like, did you bring in X dollars of new of new revenue yet? Although obviously that's nice and you'll you probably get compensated for it. But 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 at least like, you know, how many attorneys did you have a networking lunch with? And like that number better be bigger than zero <laughs> at the end of the year. Like You've got to start doing that stuff because we know it takes a while to build those relationships, but you will never get to a point where, you, where you've built those relationships if you haven't started building those relationships. That's right. So That's right. You know, and we're going to pay for their CFP dues. We're going to pay for their FPA membership. We're going to give them an allowance. We're going to pay for them to go to a conference. We're going to give them, you know, we're going to mentor them. You know, it may not be formal, but people gravitate to different people in the firm and partners, and we feel responsibility to mentor. They're going to sit with us in meetings. They're going to learn how to ask for referrals. If, if, if the advisor, the senior advisor remembers to ask for referrals, we're going to take them on some lunches. And then we've created the Bridgeworth University where they we take a day each quarter uh, and devoting to training in a lot of different areas, but development skills are certainly one of them. But yeah, you know, because if, if you don't do that, and I will say the first year of an associate advisor and their KPIs, I call them layups. You know, we're not making them do anything hard. It's not, if you can't go out and have several lunches a month, 
you may not. Yeah, <laughs> this will be a long yeah, road. Like, yeah, if we if we can't even get that far, like you're 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 not even being judged for results yet. We'll get there someday. But like, if you're not comfortable doing the layup activity, this this may be problematic in the long run. So and but you know, let's just get comfortable with the layups that should be comfortable. That's right. That's exactly right. And you know, I we will be taking a look actually later today. Okay, how much did each person spend to their business development allowance bonus. If they come in and I don't see they've spent much of their business development allowance bonus, that tells me something right there. I mean, it's just go have coffee, go have lunch, and we'll pay for it. So uh, I'm looking forward, frankly, to see how this continues to play out. But so far, I'm pleased with what I see. So what what comes next? If, if kind of stage one is a planning coordinator, Stage two is associate advisor. What what comes next on this career track? Yeah, so the next part of that would really be a lead advisor. So lead advisor, best example would be, you know, with a firm our size, frankly, I've had to back out a lot of my client responsibilities. It's, you know, too much to do. So I have uh, turned over my prior practice clients uh, to two others. And we call them lead advisors. They're a lead advisor if they do not need a partner, a senior person in there to help manage that relationship. Other people may call them relationship managers, but they are completely responsible for managing that client. Now, their compensation structure looks different than that planning coordinator and that associate advisor. Is this basically Um, when they start calculating off their, their revenue grid based on what they service and what they close and what they brought in and that calculation starts? To some, to some extent, so I was able to transition X amount of revenue to someone, and, and we built a salary. You know, the financial advisors have a base salary. You know, we do uh, spend a lot of time. I look at investment news. I've looked at your study, looked at Schwab studies, and so we have, you know, salary ranges for that. And it's also based off their experience as a CFP as well as what they're servicing. I almost hesitate a little bit to get into too much of this compensation model because I think we're going to tweak it. When we rolled this out last year, I said, here's what we're thinking. Let's get into it this year and see how it works. But it was a base salary and then incentive comp. You know, if people develop new business on their own, they get a bonus up front, one-time bonus on the front end, which some people have raised an eyebrow when I said that to other advisors outside our firm, but what we've learned from uh, another firm that that went away, a fee-only firm that was actually here in town that's no longer in existence, what we learned from their other employees was that if you have to wait a whole year to get a bonus, it's not really motivating. You know, it's a lot more motivating to bring in a client and get get a bonus for it immediately. So once they bring in the client, the account's funded or whatever's done, we will go pay a one-time bonus on that okay and as then, opposed to like you brought in a client in january and another one in in april and like you're having a great year we'll true that up for you in december at end of your bonuses when you're like wait why again did i get this check i mean i appreciate the check for like i i have to think sometimes to remember what i did last tuesday never mind last january when apparently i earned this bonus that's right that's exactly right. And so let me just kind of be clear on this. Our non-partners don't participate in revenue. 
they're paid a salary and incentive comp. And that was one of the things that Echelon really, and you know, the same thing. I have, I'm a big fan of Philip Palavives, and I've read all his books and Mark Tiburgeons. And all the books that you read will say, you know, being paid on revenue should be reserved for the owners of the firm. And so our non-owners are paid salary and then incentive compensation plans. And I will tell you, in all fairness, um, this is one of those things I feel like we're building in the air, trying to find the perfect incentive comp plan. Uh, we met with the firm last week. You said, hey, let's sit down together and pick each other's brain. And, and I've yet to find the perfect one. So if you hear it, let me know. So what what is it? So the the structure for you at this point is primarily a, a uh, at least at this tier is it, it's a one time bonus. It's paid when the account is funded. It's what like some some percentage of the projected revenue in the first year, right? And then that's one time. So that's one and that's one bonus. The other bonus we've done this year, and, and we're going to be really. This is the week for us to sit down and do a lot of accounting. But did they grow? Did that bucket of assets that we gave them to manage, did it go backwards or did it go up? We're looking at paying a percentage of their salary based on some type of growth uh, factor. But that, you know, our idea of that, Michael, was just to kind of give them a taste of of what that's like when you become a partner. Right. And and so so I can influence growth by you know, growing my client base by just getting clients to add dollars, right? Expanding relationships with existing clients, as well as just growing the amount of revenue that's under ultimately under my stewardship by whatever means I got it. Right. You know, and one thing we have to look at is you just making sure we're just not paying on market growth. But at the same time, one thing we are implementing this coming year at the suggestion, again, of, of Echelon, who's just uh, been a great resource for me, was that, Lynn, you know, you want to make sure those advisors are doing the right thing. You know, you could have an advisor, a lead advisor, and, and we hand this revenue stream to to manage this group of clients to manage, and it grows just because the market grows. Do you really want to be paying on that? And they're not doing the right thing. So we are, we'll be implementing some KPIs for our lead advisors as well. You know, we want to make sure they're, we have a lot of workflows here, Michael. Uh, we, we want to make sure they're doing business in what we call the Bridgeworth way. Okay. We want, I want everything that goes out of this office consistent. And I want their practice and their best practices to be consistent with the high standards that we've set here. I, I am wondering on the biz stuff and just this phenomenon that you want to pay them up up front because you just kind of you know you're trying to teach good good habits around business development so it, it helps give a quick reward to reinforce a good good behavior and success but but you you literally don't have the revenue yet and and presumably at least some risk that maybe it doesn't work out and the client ends up going away so like. Right. Uh, so I just, I'm just wondering, like, what, <laughs> what is my thought? Yeah, like, well, I, I mean, like, how much, like, how much do you pay on this? Because you're you're essentially fronting the money as a firm to to earn it back later. So, like, how much are you comfortable paying on this bonus? Sort of recognizing that risk. Do you do you claw it back if it doesn't work out? And 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 how do you think through this? Yeah. So. The first thought process was really influenced by these folks who came to us from the fee-only firm that I mentioned. And the more I thought about it, I thought, you know, that makes sense. 
And I will tell you, as I look back on my own practice and I looked at the numbers here in the firm, really, if a client leaves, they're probably not leaving in the first year. You know, yeah, I mean, how you, often like, does a client leave within 12 you gotta, months? You got to <laughs> really, really <laughs> screw something up <laughs> out of the gate to have them leave uh, that fast. Otherwise, if they if they were willing to take the leap to join you in the first place, like if you overcame that barrier and they signed some forms and transferred something, usually you've got at least a 12-month running start before you, you, you manage to screw something up enough they fire you. Right. And that's what I said. If they left in the first 12 months, I got a bigger problem than whatever bonus I paid paid to that person. There's something else going on. So, you know, the bonus, what we've paid this year, and it's certainly on the table to be discussed because I think it probably should be higher than what we paid. We we started out with 15%, and that's something we're reevaluating. When we rolled out this plan last year, Michael, the first thing I said was, I don't want to be the type of leader who comes to the group every year and changing compensation plans because that's just wrong. People don't like that. They want to know, they want to say, tell me what I need to do to earn X. And I want them to be comfortable and do that. However, when we were going through this complete reorganization, I did say day one, this is our plan and we may tweak it because we're going to learn things. You know, we initially paid it just on new business. Finally, one of the other folks looked at us one day and said, well, Delenn, shouldn't we get a bonus? If we get new business from the same client, you know, it's a lot cheaper to get more business from the existing client than go get a new one. And I looked at him, I thought, he's absolutely right. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> that's reasonable. I missed that. So we're, we're reevaluating that for next year also. And it's just logical to me. So, you know, it's worth the risk, Michael, to pay that on the upfront. And we certainly haven't seen any problems with that. And so tier one is the planning coordinator, tier two is the associate advisor, tier three is the lead advisor, and by now you're you're sort of full-on responsible for client relationships. So then what's what's tier four? Well, in my book that I wrote, I do have a I do have a tier for senior advisor, and I'm not sure I remember why we did that, because um that may be somebody who, you know, is very close to being a partner. There's a difference between, a you know, your one lead advisor and maybe somebody who's been a lead advisor for five or six years. It may not be a partner, but I, the compensation models are really the same. And then partner. So it's pretty, pretty straightforward. And, and so talk to us more about partners. So I guess partner is partners where the economics really start changing because you now move away from just base salary plus incentives where you get this one time on your business development now your biz dev incentives are you know ongoing credits that you get that go in your bucket in calculating in calculating the the gr- kind of salary grid piece that you get not to mention that you participate in the in the profits so so like what does it take to become partner like how if i'm a next generation advisor or G2 or G3 as you've as you put it like I understand how I move up from planning coordinator to associate advisor because you know I learned my technical stuff I understand how I move up from associate advisor to lead advisor because I got really good at at handling your know, client relationships and being able to manage them so how do I move up to partner like how do I make partner at at Bridgeworth well, so in complete transparency, we haven't had anybody to do that yet. Okay, so okay. we're early enough in the process. And- <laughs> Someone's going to be the first to cross the, cross right. the line. Okay. 
That's right. Somebody will be. I will tell you that that is something we're still working through. I can tell you my my vision for that is, number one, they're going to have to buy in, right, to that. They probably, for the most part, you know, in my career track, they've been given a revenue stream to manage. So they're not just going to turn that revenue stream in again and get equity for that. They will have to buy uh, into the firm with some credit for business that they uh, developed. You know, I, I think it's going to be a mindset shift, Michael, because, you know, I, you read these things or you hear a podcast, it's like, aha, yeah, I need to think about that. And somebody in one of your podcasts, I believe it was, talked about you can't just look at what they're developing. You got to look, if you've given them a revenue stream to manage and they've grown it substantially, that that's worth something. You know, that's that's you got to give good credit for that. Uh, but at the same time, we are going to make sure that that person has those business development skills. And this goes back to what we talked about a few minutes ago. For this firm to be sustainable, they can't just babysit clients, right? They've got to continue adding to it to be able to feed the generation behind them. So a partner is going to have to have those business development skills. And, you know, we're, we're looking I will tell you the level for that is probably going to be higher in the future than it was in the past. And, and I would imagine there's sort of a double-edged sword here that, you know, if I'm trying to make partner at the end of the day, I get better compensation as a partner than as a lead advisor because I get my ongoing credits instead of my one-time payment. Like on the one hand, I've got a little bit of an incentive to hold off on some of my biz dev until I cross the line to partner. But I guess on the flip side, A, you're at least thinking about like can i give them some credit for the business they developed and b like if you really want to play that game you're never going to have any business development under your name and you're never going to cross that line <laughs> so like yeah you got to you got to make the business development investment if you want to ever make the business development if you ever want to make the partner line absolutely yeah if they start trying to play that game that that's a no win situation i mean look at accounting firms look at law firms you know, you have income partners many times where it's folks who make partner, but they're not sharing equity. But to make an equity partner and get that big bump up in compensation, they don't make equities partners in any of those firms unless they do have strong business development that skills. They've, that they've already demonstrated and, and brought to the table with an actual track record of, of success. That's right. And that's why I think we've got to, as we develop this formula, have got to, credit will have to be given for that. I think that's only fair. But I, I wish I could sit here. Maybe next year I can come back to you and tell you what we figured out. But um, I have the large framework. We just haven't worked through the final the final details yet. Well, you're, you're 10 plus years in the firm, but o- only six with the standalone RIA and, and sort of only about two full since you really restructured into this compensation equity arrangements. So we, we got to takes a little bit of time for someone to then hit the new lines. It's like, Hey, I can only figure out so much at once, you know, <laughs> I mean, I can but it is real important because we have some outstanding G2 advisors who are managing substantial revenue streams and who are absolute superstars. I mean, I, I can only, I, I can't even imagine where some of us would be you know, if we'd been like these guys that are so young now, but they're wanting to know, 
you know, and so we're giving them the framework. But I guess fortunately or unfortunately, nobody's knocking on that door right this moment. Got a few more months to figure that Mon- out. Months. <laughs> I got that though. That's not like, well, you know, we're going to figure this out over the next three to five years as some people move up. We're like, we're still talking the next three to five months. Right. Because they want to know. And I would want to know too, if I'm sitting here managing this, you know, and I'm playing an integral role in the growth of this firm and developing as a leader, and that's something else we're trying to do with these G2s. I want to make sure I know how the what the end game is, right? <laughs> I don't want to be surprised. So we owe it to these folks, and then we will have something. Well, I think that's an important distinction as well that I, I feel like I see routinely as a problem in the in in the industry that for a lot of firms out there, the particularly if they haven't introduced sort of new next generation partners yet, there's kind of this like, well, show me what you can do, and I'll decide if it's partner worthy. And like, you know, we, we, you know, we decide on partners based on the facts and circumstances at the time. And, and I mean, I get that I have sympathy for that, right. From the, from the partner ends, like I, I don't want to introduce, you know, I, I don't want to promise or guarantee equity and partnership to people who are like, Oh my God, I can't believe I gave that person equity. Like this is, this is not good. This is not working well. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not happy with this, but, but from the flip side, you know, it's, it's one thing. I think to say to a next generation advisor, look, if you want to, if you want to make partner, you got to make the pie bigger. And that means growing the firm. And that means doing some business development and demonstrating that you can do it successfully. Otherwise, like you'll have a great job and we'll pay you as a lead advisor. But like, if you want to cross the line of partner and participate in the pie, you have to help make the pie bigger. But here are the rules of the game. Like if you can do these things and hit these numbers and contribute in these other non-biz dev ways as well. Like I think you'd mentioned leadership, volunteerism to the profession with FPA, activity in the community. Like if you can check these boxes, you will have the opportunity. So, you know, we've defined the rules of engagement. Now it's just on them to decide if they want to step up and do the work and make the sacrifices necessary to get there. But like it's 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 on them as opposed to well, you know, I told them if they impress me, I'll give them a shot and they're not trying to impress me. Like well, yeah, because they have no idea if you're going to give them a shot. <laughs> like, you, you didn't, you didn't even tell them what impress me means. Like, in in your mind, that might mean bringing half a million dollars in new revenue. In their mind, it's like get two clients, <laughs> right? And I can tell you, that's not it. But you know, if, if you've never gotten a client, you're like, I got two. I'm I'm rocking it. Like, why haven't I made partner yet? Because because that's what happens if you don't define the rules of engagement. Like, everybody makes up in their own heads what is quote meaningful and. What's meaningful to them may not be the same as what's meaningful to you. So if you want a thing that's meaningful to you, like, tell them what's meaningful. Well, and the other piece of that, that's exactly right. The other piece of that that I think about and I remind my current partners of is we, again, have the financial responsibility for the well-being of this firm. And, you know, things can happen. I remember what kind of revenue hit we took in 08 and 09. Now we, we came through that with flying colors. But when you're an owner, you know, profits may go down. You know, we've got salaries to take care of. We have people to take care of. And, and so what I encourage, and I've been talking to some of our G2 advisors, is one other thing to do is you need to get financially prepared to be an owner. Right? Because... I can't imagine what could happen today, but things could happen. And so owners do do need to be prepared to shoulder that 
that risk. And, and that's something I think some people, they think about, oh, I want to be a partner and the glory, et cetera, that goes with that. But they don't think about the risk and the downside that comes with it. It's truly a special moment as a business owner the first time you're looking at a business situation where it's not even just oh we're having a bad year we may not we we may not get any profits but like you actually have to figure out how to make payroll. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, fortunately we haven't had to do that, but you know, I do envision uh, we're making some investments this coming year in infrastructure and space and you know, that's that decision. Uh, of course, I'm leading a lot of that, but at the same time, that's some of these decisions are partner level decisions. It's like, are we ready to make these step up and make certain investments, which may and will affect the bottom line? So, I, I do want to ask though, because so much of this conversation has kind of revolved around like the business development piece and the fact that so many people coming in have to learn that because you don't hone that skill out of the gate the way they used to. You hone the, the technical skills first, and then the biz dev skills come later, but you do have to get there. So you, you mentioned this uh, like business development is even a topic that you're that you're tying into in your Bridgeworth University program. So I'm I'm just wondering like what are you guys trying to do to teach business development and and nurture these skills? Well, I think the first awareness, right? You know, trying to get again, we have some of these great G2s have come out of these fantastic programs and they're so focused on the technical side. It's like, wait a minute, let's make sure we're also hitting this other. So, so one is awareness. And again, we're addressing that a little bit in their compensation, right, with the KPIs. But with the Bridgeworth University, and I will tell you, this is another program that we're still building while it's in the year. First of all, um, the person leading that program is one of the most experienced advisors. She came out of a highly regarded fee-only firm here in town when they they closed or emerged due to their founder retiring. And she just has incredible skills at teaching. So what she's done is organized programs. And part of these things are reading books. We just finished reading Never Eat Alone is the name of the book. I cannot think of the guy's last name. Fantastic book. And so part of Bridgeworth University is they will have certain books to read each month and then have a book discussion about it. We will bring in outside speakers. We will have certain senior of the partners here in the firm sit down with them and do sessions on uh, one we're doing right now is how do you ask a client for a referral? You know, do you ask a client for a referral? And number two, how you go about doing that. You had a great podcast just this past week on um, how to take referrals. When somebody says, hey, I'm, I've told my friend Joe Smith to call you, how you take that and, and make something happen with that. So we're bringing in podcasts. We're bringing in books. We're bringing in speakers. And we're talking about it. And then sharing, uh, a large part is sharing. Okay, what did you do this month? You know, let's talk about what worked well, what didn't work well. So we have a lot that we can teach. And we just had to have somebody here to organize it, put it together, keep it going, help me keep organized. And back to our tagline, you know, drawing on a wealth of knowledge. There's a tremendous wealth of knowledge here internally, and we've just got to make sure we pass that to the next generation. But I, it, it's an interesting distinction that, that you've made that you know, the look, the key isn't just figuring out how to teach business development. If you've got a bunch of 
successful partners in the firm who've done this, there are some skills that can be taught. There are some books out there. There are some podcasts out there. There's stuff out there if you take any level of time to go look. The the challenge for so many of us is I'll have the time to look because I'm running my firm and I run my clients and all the other things that I all the other duties that I have. So I, I find it interesting from just the business end that to me the real distinction here is and you put resources towards it as a firm owner. Like you you hired a person who will be responsible for it. And like, lo and behold, when there's a person who's responsible and accountable for the thing, it actually often turns out the thing gets done. Exactly. And you know something else that creates, Michael, that I wanted to, you know, I look at the advantage of those of us who've been together for 30 years. There's a bond there. And where did the bond start? It, it started when we were all in the trenches together trying to make it, right? It's... I wanted these classes to be done in a way, this is an opportunity for the next generation to bond, to spend time together, to learn, because I think that is so, that's so important for the culture of our firm and, and building and making sure the culture that we've created, again, goes to the next generation. So what's what surprised you the most about trying to build your own advisory business? You mean the firm itself, not just my Prior practice. Yeah. Yeah. What surprised me the most? I think what surprised me the most initially was, and again, I'm going back 12 years, was some were doing a great job. They were in their lane. They kept their head down. They're just working. Okay. They're working. They're taking care of their families. They're taking care of their clients, but had not really raised their head up to say, hey, what's going on out there in the larger world. And maybe that's what I like to do. Uh, maybe that's why I'm in this role. But I think surprisingly initially that others had not, you know, were ready to do something. So that was my initial surprise. However, what really surprised me is when we all kind of looked up and came together, by and large, everybody was on the same page. It, it, it has been the, the honor and privilege of my life to be able to work with these people for that long and us to have a common vision and, and looking out to build something together. And that was surprising to me. And I think this most recent reorganization, again, looking back on it, that everyone bought in. And even though every little detail was not done, not every I was crossed, uh, dotted, every T was crossed, but that there was enough trust and respect that, hey, you know, it may not be perfect. We've got to still make some adjustments, but we believe in each other. And we're going to do this. That's been a surprise to me. Happy surprise. It's such a striking point to me because there are, just in practice, there are a lot of advisory firm partnerships and mergers that fail, that that don't that don't work out. And, and not even just the like, hey, over the long term, we kind of grew in different directions. And I just think we should probably start ways. But like, we, we get together to merge or, or join together to build a thing and just it crashes and burns in three months or six months or 12 months. Like it, the, the partnership just fundamentally doesn't work. So like what, what was it that made it work in yours that just like, holy cow, we all had common vision and off we went. I do think, as I said, I, I may be trivializing this some, but I, I do think it's that long-term trust long-term relationships have made it work. And we said from the outset, and we had the right people to do it. Because let me tell you something, I've worked with people in the past who 
no way would they have done something like this. They were more focused. And, and that's why you have people who are solo practitioner lawyers and some who are part of big firms because they just have a mindset. They want to do things their own way. And I think we just had the right group of people. And we're very careful, Michael, of who we bring into the firm because you bring in one bad apple and you know what happens from there. So the people we have here are just outstanding people. I would trust any of them with my money. And they're all the kind of people that I want to be in business with. Well, and it strikes me just, I mean, that's how you describe people that you just fundamentally want to be in a relationship with. I mean, it, it a lot of what you're saying to me just <laughs> reminds me of the commitments of of marriage as well. Like, you know, not every I is dotted and T is crossed, but how your life's going to work out together and the shared thing for the next 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, depending on how long you go at it, there comes a point where you've made a commitment to each other in this relationship and you trust each other in this relationship. And you say, when we hit the stuff, like we're going to sit down together, we're going to have hard conversations and we're going to work through it. And we're going to figure out whatever compromise it takes because we're committed to the relationship and maintaining the relationship. And, and uh, I think it, it, it really is very much the same thing in, in the, in the partnership context, in, including that, you know, if, uh, you know, if you get married a little too quickly before getting to know the other person, you kind of take a risk about whether that's going to work out. And, and I think there's a piece of that in the, in the partnership end as well, that, you know, a lot of partnerships, if you're like kind of, jump to the marriage stage without without the dating get to know you process first and and I'm always fascinated by partnerships that come together and and end up blowing up that like everyone I ever talked to always says there were warning signs in retrospect they just you know were were too enamored with the person or the relationship or the opportunity or whatever it is and 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 didn't pay attention to the warning signs and I'm like yeah it kind of sounds like the same reason why some of those like overnight marriages in Vegas don't always work out either. Like just, Hey, every now and then it does. And if that's your story, more power to you that, that you found that synergy, but like the track record is usually not good because, you know, if you're that caught up in the moment, you tend to miss the warning signs or ignore the warning signs. And usually there's some there if you've taken any time to look and pay attention. You know, I, one of my my partners, and we've been together, as I said, a long time, and one of the things he and I have always talked about early on in our career, you know, we were young, we were in our 20s, and we'd see these guys, then it was guys, who were very successful. And they let you know how successful they were. And they had a certain ego. And they weren't very helpful to the younger ones of us. Uh, they were, would make freight comments, oh, we're carrying the firm, this, that, and the other. Wayne and I always said we never wanted to be that type of person, regardless of how successful we became, if, if we became successful one day. We never wanted to treat people like that, and we never wanted to be that type of person. So, you know, there's a lot of humility uh, here in our firm. We got a lot of successful people, but we also recognize that we don't achieve success on our own. It's collective. And I, I we may could have, and I don't we'll say may, I know we've had several opportunities to add people to our organization that at the end of the day, they met every criteria except one. They could not play. We knew that they could not play well in the sandbox. And I think we just kind of, I know my, um, my idol firm, who I've gotten a lot of help from and inspiration from is Signature FD in Atlanta. 
And I, I know Heather talks about using an industrial psychologist. We have not done that. But I would tell you that's on my list of things to investigate for 2020 if we bring people in. To, it's worth the investment to go through that process. So how has your role at the firm changed over the years? Because it sounds like it's moved quite a bit over this 10-year journey. Yeah, yes. Somebody asked me one time, how did I wind up being the CEO? And I kind of laughed. I said, it wasn't like it was all we're sitting around a boardroom and we had this vote and I won. I think I just assumed the role and started say, doing it. Because everybody else stepped backwards <laughs> more quickly, so you were the only one right. that was still forwards. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. You know, I guess it was, this has not been a, this firm has not been built just by me. It's been built by the entire firm. But early on, I was probably the one out front saying, this is what we need to do, organizing things, getting the ball rolling. And I would tell you at the time, I, I still had a large practice, but I did two things. One, back in the day when we were hiring our own staff, I invested uh, a lot and bringing people onto my team that could step up and do a lot of things. I invested very heavily in staff. And so that allowed me the time to do some things. I was at a time personally in my career, you know, I hate to say this, I was married and husband had a paycheck, right? And so I could step back a little bit and not be quite as focused on me and and spend more time focusing on the firm as opposed to others who, you know, supporting a family and, wife at home and, you know, had had more pressures, if that makes sense. So I assumed the role. I started leading. And so far, nobody has come into my door yet and said they want the job. And it sounds like in in practice, you're not doing as much or any client-facing relationship management work now because there's just a lot of people to handle. There's a lot to handle. Everything we've gone through in the past year, you know, it's amazing what my day, what my calendar looks like at eight o'clock in the morning and what it winds up being by five o'clock in the afternoon. The larger we got, and I think I underestimated this, Michael, because I love the client aspect of it. I've had clients who are still here that I had when I was 25 years old. I mean, that's you can't just walk away from those relationships. However, I've done a, I think it's been successful in the way we've transitioned, but I make it a point when my schedule permits, I get in those meetings, you know, I let them know I'm still here. I'm still involved. I still know what's going on, but I am not in the weeds, but I am actively involved. And I think this is part of my role is through the business development. I, I think you've been around for a long time. You start getting referrals and again, just point in time in career and colleagues and friends who've reached a stage of their life who need this type of service, I am able to do business development and bring clients in. And and to me, that's just, that's very gratifying. I love doing that. So can you give us just some context? Like what is the actual size of the firm at this point of, of AUM or clients or employees, however you measure that? Today, we have 18 what I would uh, advisors, lead advisors, partners. We have total of forty six people. That's in both offices. So I have we have a fully built out um, leadership team. We have a chief compliance officer, who is kind of interesting. She started with me as an intern, went back to law school, came back here for a while, then went to Atlanta, and then we brought her back as our chief compliance officer. That, so that has been a great. That has been a really cool story. We have a marketing director. We have a CFO. 
We have a director of planning who oversees our all of our planning, and we have a chief investment strategist, which rounds out our leadership team. Of all of those people, 22 of them are CFPs, and that's something, again, I'm proud of, and the fact that they don't progress in our firm unless they do get their CFP. And I don't care if they have a law degree or a CPA, they have to have that and CFP. And do you get any of them that gripe? Like, you know what I went through to get a law degree. <laughs> Right. We interviewed somebody recently who had a law degree and there was no questions like, yeah, you have to start at the beginning. <laughs> you have to get your get your CFP. And, and why like why do you put it on a uh, at that level? Because I think it builds credibility, Michael. You know, we've we're the largest group of CFPs really in Birmingham, probably the state. I think it sets us apart and I am a firm believer in our profession being a true profession. And I just think that's one way we can do that. Asset-wise, you know, if you're looking at total assets, including the brokerage stuff, we're 1.5 to 1.6 billion. And, and how many client households is that? Yeah, too many, actually. Uh, a little over <laughs> a little over 2,000, which is something that is... As I mentioned earlier, we're really focusing on right now, you know, again, some of the, when you've been around this long and when some of our partners have been around this long, as you know, you've got clients who are in their 80s and their 90s and they're distributing out of their portfolios. And so those, those sizes are going down or who may not have met, you know, who don't meet minimums or some of our younger advisors who, when they started as many, you know, everybody's a client, right? Yep. As long as they can fog a, <laughs> Make them a, as client. Long as they can fog a mirror. Yep. If I can fuck a mirror. But now we, we've stopped that. And so focus will be to, you know, those will. Is there a minimum for the firm going forward of who you'll accept? Yeah, we are. Uh, and we've had a lot of conversation about this recently. And we have a committee put together to study it. And we will fully adopt this at the next partner meeting. But we're looking now at it as total revenue, not just by client size. You know, that total revenue may be a combination of a planning fee or assets under management, but you know, our minimum is five thousand dollars of revenue. But the but the nice thing is you noted, as opposed to just doing AUM, like a half million dollar minimum at, at a at a at a fee schedule, is you know, look, if they want to pay us a planning fee of five thousand dollars and they find value in what we do and they don't happen to have assets, like if they're paying the dollars for the services, like we will service them. And it takes some of the pressure off of saying, you must have this much money to work with us and simply, here's what we do and what it costs. You must be willing to pay what we charge. That's right. And what it takes to successfully run a business. You know, it drives me crazy to look at something and, you know, it costs us X to run the business per client <laughs> and the client's bringing in, you know, half of that. That's that's not a real profitable way to, to run a business, but it is what it is. You know, we have that. We can't just we can't just snap our fingers and change it overnight. So, and again, I, I don't. Some of these that don't hit minimums, they're people that were great clients to us twenty years ago, and we helped them in retirement, and they are you know winding down their life. You know, we're not going to abandon them because they don't meet a minimum, right? And we do have a. a program that we've used some called Bridgeworth Access. And that is for our young professionals. Not everybody who call, comes to the firm or calls in who don't doesn't have the minimums we would put in this program. This is for those, maybe the young lawyers, the young doctors. They don't have a lot of assets today, but my goodness, they're who we want to be our clients for the future, right? 
So we want to establish a relationship today. And, and so we'll do a, a less of a fee and sometimes a monthly retainer. Uh, we're revamping some of those, that as well. So what was the low point for you on the career journey? I would tell you the low point was probably my second year in the career, Michael. My father was a big believer in, you know, being being business for yourself, don't work for somebody else. He did make me get an accounting degree, which I'm so very thankful that he did. But, you know, I've started this firm and, you know, here's the phone, go get them to Lynn. And, you know, I lived off savings for a while. And the low point was having to sit down with my family and say, hey, I think I'm building something good. I'm, I'm getting some traction here, but I'm not making enough money because I refuse to sell products just to create a commission. That was not that was not in my DNA. I was not going to do that. That was probably my lowest point in having to sit there with them and say, is this worth doing? You know, I was very much career minded coming out of school and to have to sit down and say, hey, I, I need some help paying the rent. And did, did you actually have to come back to them for, for financial help in that second year? My father said, you know, you create wealth by being in business for yourself. And if you think this is the right thing to do, we support you. And I was very fortunate in that. I think it's just a, it's a powerful thing to, to recognize for as, you know, as good as the business gets after, 10, 20 plus years and building revenue and building firms and, and the profits that come and the rest, like it's, it's pretty ugly for almost everybody in the first few years. And, and, and if you don't have a pretty healthy financial base, some combination of savings, other income potential for many spouses, income potential or, or, or family that, that you can help rely on, like the, the, the sheer financial pressure of it early on, I think has probably knocked a lot of really good long-term advisors out of the business because they they didn't survive past year two or year three to get to the really great place in years 10, 20, 30. And how wonderful it is today that people don't have to do that. You know, <laughs> that's, that's something that people, people appreciate, but we are as a profession getting to where we need to be. And, and, and I would never want to put somebody through that. So speaking of that, so you know, looking back now, having done this for nearly 30 years, what advice would you give today to a, a younger advisor coming in and getting started? Or I'm, or, or I'm thinking even in particular, a, a young woman coming into the business, because you know, we, we still have a dismally low percentage of women. I know your, uh, your firm already has a much higher percentage of women in leadership than a lot of other advisory firms, but it's still a minority of the total. So like, you know, what do you know now that you would tell yourself then or, or tell a young woman coming in today who's who's trying to get started and figuring out how to do this? Well, first of all, I, if we're just talking about the, the female standpoint, I, I can't think of a better career for a young woman. You know, it, it's really a natural career for so many of those talent women, the skills women innately have. You know, most women are nurturers. You know, they are empathetic. They can take a lot of skills and, and apply that. There's usually a lot of flexibility in this career, especially as you get up in the higher, you know, higher levels. I would tell somebody, whether it's male or female, find that firm that you can look around and say, this is where I want to be. Don't worry about the starting salary. Don't worry about all of that. Is this the culture or the type of place you can see yourself one day? 
staying one day and being a partner one day. That's the firm you should join. I would also tell them today, uh, and I'm doing this, we've just, we had an outstanding intern um, this summer and we've already made her an offer and she'll be starting uh, when she graduates next summer because we saw things in her. And that is a recognition of, of, of not only the skills, but the things that we can't teach, the people skills, and our focus on those relationships. When we talk about business development, I, I hate that word sometimes, Michael, because at the end of the day, what it really is is relationships, right? You know, I would give the advice to people getting started, start building your network, start building those relationships day one. Because if you wait too long to sow those seeds, it's going to be a lot longer before those seeds flourish. I like that the sooner the sooner you start uh, sowing those seeds, the sooner they flourish. That's right. And look at it as a relationship, not you know what you can do to help other people. You know, we tell our folks, don't go meet someone as a center of influence to figure out what they can do for you. You try to figure out what you can do for them, and 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 start doing that day one. I mean, it strikes me like this: they your comment around like. Try to find a good firm that you want to be at in the long term that has the right culture rather than fretting about sort of the particular salary and and role. You know, there's a a famous saying out there in, in Silicon Valley world that I, I believe came from Sheryl Sandberg when she was looking at changing firms and, and getting on board with a a new one that, you know, the same is if you're offered a seat on a rocket ship, you don't ask what seat. You just get on and you figure it out later. Like you don't always get a lot of chances to get on a rocket ship. So if you get a great opportunity, don't don't quibble about the seat. Get on, and you'll have a whole career there to figure out how to get to the exact role that you want. That's exactly right. And, you know, I, you mentioned the comment about fewer women. You know, I, I kind of laugh. I, I hear that. I see the statistics. It is amazing to me, at least in our city, there has just been this uprising of women in the financial services arena and a lot of focus on that in the past few years. And the financial planning program at the University of Alabama, uh, the majority are women coming through that program right now in, in their master's program. And so I find that I find that very refreshing. And I'm hopeful that over the next five to ten years we see a huge shift. And I think we will. I think it's just letting these young women know that this career is out there. I don't know too many people in high school whose parents or girls in high school or parents are saying, oh, I think you should become a financial planner. <laughs> That's not traditional. Uh, they typically find out about it when they're in college or getting internships or whatever. But I'm seeing more and more of that. And that's very exciting to me. Very exciting. So as we wrap up, this is a a podcast around success. And, and one of the themes that always comes up is just the, even the word success means different things to different people. So you, you've you built what certainly is objectively a very successful business. You are the, the CEO of this business and guiding forward for sustaining successful business into the future. Uh, but I, I'm wondering, how do you define success for yourself at this point? You know, success for it's not about me. When I look back and think, you know, what success is, success to me is going to be able to walk out of this firm one day, retire, and look back and say, hey, I, I helped create something that is going to be sustainable. 
that, you know, through our efforts, we have these career tracks and the compensation program is all figured out. And we figured out the silver bullet and we have, you know, this great Bridgeworth University and we have the internship programs and it's just feeding right in and people just going through the pipeline. And our organization looks and is a weld oil machine, very much like other financial uh, services firms and other, you know, as we talked about the legal and the accounting. To me, I guess seeing that happen and frankly seeing the G2s and the G3s step into leadership roles is going to be success for me. And I have to ask, where did the Bridgeworth name come from? You said like you sit down and spend a bunch of time looking at it uh, when you were figuring out what to brand and make the shift. We hired a firm, Scout Branding here in Birmingham, just a wonderful uh, gentleman named by the name of Paul Crawford, who had had a lot of success outside of Birmingham, came here, started a firm, and that's really what he did. He sat down with us, and we spent a day, I'll never forget, going through and talking about the firm and our vision and letting, really doing a brain dump on him. And he came back to us with some ideas, and we settled on one. You know, this was a big deal, Michael, because many people, you know, they would just use everybody's last names, right? <laughs> like a law firm or use their name. And, you know, we wanted something distinctive and different. And the first name he came back with, this is kind of funny, was the name Havenworth. And we thought, okay, we like that. It's kind of peaceful. And the way home that night, I, you know, the, in a haven. Who doesn't doesn't want to spend time in a haven? So, you know, there was something about that resonated with me. So anyway, I I was on my way home that day and I called my mother and I said, well, here's what we did today. What do you think about this name? And the phone just went dead silent. I thought, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, something. She said, Delenn, the haven is the drug rehab center (laughs) in your hometown. (laughs) So I walked in the next day and I thought, oh my gosh, I can't do that. Of course, my hometown was 200 miles away, but still. I walked in the next day, and one of my partners was sitting there at his desk, and he looked at me, and he just shook his head, and I shook my head, and I went there and called Paul, and I said, we need round two. (laughs) So, you know, as we thought about bridging the gap, you know, bridging one generation to the next and families, bridging to the next generation of advisors, it just, the bridge seemed to mean a lot, and of course, worth money. And so we we found one group in the country who had that name. It was a defunct hedge fund, and they didn't bridge very well. And we grabbed it, trademarked it, and it has worked well for us. I love it, and and particularly just in the context of you know trying to build this lasting, sustaining firm. Like to me, there is something very powerful around bridge worth and the bridging metaphor, not only in bridging clients from work to gener- work to retirement and bridging generational wealth across families, but like bridging the firm to the next generation as well. Well, very cool. I'm, I'm excited to see how the bridge building continues to work out for the firm. Well, thank you. Appreciate the opportunity to visit today and certainly appreciate all you're doing because I have to tell you, I think it's very powerful to be able to talk to others. You know, we all shouldn't be out there trying to reinvent the same wheel. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Dylan, on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. 
And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.